it's not always um, that easy to know what to really speak about in the first night of a retreat. There's really so many things that could be spoken about. But I think this evening I'd like to continue with this theme that we've been emphasizing since we began, which is really about the the kind of attitude that we are bringing to our practice, the qualities of heart and mind that actually really allow this, our own practice to, to deepen and to develop. So this evening I'd like to reflect on this theme of gladdening the mind, gladdening the heart. Being aware that in this teaching, the words mind and heart are used interchangeably and not separated into two different spheres or dimensions. I'd like to begin with a poem by Naomi Shihabnai. She says, it's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there is something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing, and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches, and love even the floor which needs to be swept. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. A lot of our practice really does begin with cultivating, I think, this very profound art of inner contentment. And in this sense of contentment is, is probably one of the most rare and precious great gifts we can find in our lives. It can be so hard to find. And yet in the moments we we glimpse that sense of inner ease and well-being, the sense of sufficiency in the moment. It can also feel in those moments as if our whole world is filled with ease. Discontent we bump into often enough. And the discontent in mind, in my experience, mostly is encountered when we're heroically striving to be something we are not and to have something we don't have. And happiness and contentment is sometimes no further away from us than the next breath than really learning what it means to open our heart to this moment we are in and to release this striving. In truth, life really doesn't have to be perfect for us to find peace. Our minds, our bodies, our hearts don't have to be perfect for us to find a sense of ease and contentment. And our meditation certainly doesn't have to be perfect. But then this sense of ease and contentment really is about what we allow to fall away. And sometimes what we're allowing to fall away is resistance or fear or the the striving for something else, something apart. 
Now, Siddhartha, in his early years of practice as an ascetic, made heroic efforts to transcend this imperfect world. If you remember the time of, you know, if you just a little history, but at the time of Siddhartha's practice, the kind of spiritual climate, the spiritual ethos of that time was really to regard life as a problem, to regard the body, the mind, relationships, everything as a kind of obstacle to liberation. And so the whole spiritual path was one which was directed towards overcoming, towards getting away from, transcending. And you know, in some ways, when you read the sort of historical background to Siddhartha's journey, it's like he went through like a seven-year aversion attack. You know, trying to subdue his body, subdue his mind, disconnect and disengage from life. And there was this turning point that is spoken about in the discourses. When Siddhartha was sitting on a hillside and, and he, 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 Siddhartha remembered a time when he was a small boy and he was sitting on a hillside And he was looking down at a farmer plowing his fields. And he remembered from that time, it being a time when there came to him this remarkable sense of ease and peace and sufficiency. And it really wasn't a a product of striving. It wasn't a product of, of, you know, finding this perfect moment. It wasn't a product of becoming something. It was born of actually reconnecting and discovering this inner capacity for ease and contentment. And actually, so much of the teaching from that point actually recalls or or kind of draws upon um, that story, that experience, especially when the Buddha says so often that the, the sources of joy the sources of sorrow live within our own hearts. Now, the first day of a retreat, I know it can be a really difficult day. And one of the reasons that it's difficult is that we meet so directly everything that seems so imperfect. And there's nowhere to hide, you know, especially here. <laughs> You know, there's nowhere to hide from our body. There's nowhere to hide from our mind. There's nowhere to hide from our roommate. You know, there's nowhere to hide from our, 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 the reality of our practice, which often seems so other than we imagined it's supposed to be. And often that, that kind of meeting on the, of the imperfect, we see how much kind of storytelling it begins to create. And... One of the stories that we often begin to entertain is the story about our suspicions about this path being, you know, grim and somber and miserable and, um, you know, we're sure it's going to be like that forever. The Buddha never taught that this is a path of misery that leads to ultimate misery. (laughs) The Buddha did teach that this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. And contrary to some of what we may have read or even experienced, the Buddha often spoke of the joy and the contentment of a gladdened heart spoke of the happiness born of a collected mind, a calm heart, the happiness born of seclusion, the the joy born of letting go, spoke often of the gladness and the joy that is born of, of loving kindness, of compassion, of appreciation and equanimity, and spoke often of the joy of a liberated heart, the joy of a liberated mind. 
I mean, I, I think we hear this, you know, and our response to this is, you know, obviously often very positive, but we also tend to be somewhat dualistic in our understanding. And often one of those dualisms we entertain is that we, we think that first it's necessary to suffer, and that later on, after we've suffered enough, or possibly as a reward for suffering enough, we're going to be happy. There's a kind of belief system often that first we, it's important for us to struggle and strive, and that again, later on, at some mysterious moment, we're going to stumble across contentment. Personally, I would suggest that it's much more helpful for us to ask ourselves what it would mean for us right here and right now, what it would mean for us to have our practice unfold in a climate of gladness, in an inner climate of gladness. And what would we need to cultivate even to really meet that gladdened heart. And I would encourage you, really, to take into your practice as a, as a koan, as a kind of reflection, this very, I think it's a very poignant instruction of the Buddha when he says, in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. And in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. I, you know, when I first heard, heard that, I was mystified. You know, because I thought, well, what does that mean? You know, I thought, like, attention is supposed to produce the happiness. But he's actually talking about establishing these foundations we've been talking about since last night, about establishing these attitudes of mind, these attitudes of heart that we're actually bringing into our practice. And that these attitudes, this quality of intention that we bring into our practice, the intentions of kindness, of, of generosity, of, of gentleness, that these are the qualities that actually provide the foundation for attention really to take root. And that to me is, is a kind of, it's a sort of reversal of how we often think about you know, how that journey to attentiveness. It's a reversal of often how we think about it. Now, in, in this practice and in the whole culture of mindfulness, wise attention is really placed at the beginning and in the center of a path of deepening. And there's a really direct relationship that is made between wise attention, and the deepening of insight. You know, that that mind and heart that is beginning to calm, beginning to still, is actually a mind and heart that is really receptive to and inclined towards understanding. So it's no surprise that most meditation practice in every tradition, you know, every spiritual culture, really stresses this this beginning of let's learn what it means to be attentive. Let's learn what it means to attend to our life. It says that it's often said that out of that calmness and that stillness comes compassion. The receptive heart that can really reach out to embrace sorrow. And we know in our own lives, in our own experience, that all the moments in our life when we've been most deeply touched are the moments when we've been wholeheartedly present, when we've been wholeheartedly awake. I mean, I'm sure it's clear in our own experience that, that to listen to another person deeply, to listen to ourselves deeply, to to see or to feel anything deeply, we need to be present 
and we need to be attentive. So today we have begun breath by breath and step by step, moment to moment. What we're doing is we are cultivating that inner capacity. We're cultivating that inner capacity to be present and to be attentive. And as we do this, it's really important to stay close to that reflection that in a mind of happiness, wise attention takes root. Now, one of the first things I'm sure you've noticed today, and we touched upon this a little bit in the question period, that there seems to be a certain kind of almost intrinsic tension in developing wise attention. Because what we're meeting over and over again is this heart, this mind, that actually would rather not be here. It'd rather be somewhere else. You know, and actually in the first day of a retreat, almost anywhere else, you know, <laughs> looks pretty attractive, you know. And if we can't find somewhere else to be physically, we're pretty fertile in our capacity for fantasy and imagining and... and uh, narration. Now you notice that, okay, so let, let's look at that. Notice, notice that we were, we're often really happy to be attentive to things that are pleasant. You know, if, if we were watching the sunset, listening to a piece of music, if we were playing a good movie in here maybe, a wonderful meal, or if you were with a person that you cared for deeply, you can do that. You can be wholeheartedly attentive without ever wanting to be somewhere else. You know, if you think of a time in your life when you were falling in love or something, nobody had to shout at you and say, would you please pay attention? You're there. It's the nature of it. In your meditation today, you know, if you'd been experiencing endless moments of rapture and bliss and, you know, startling and profound insights and uplifting experiences, quite frankly, you'd probably be glued to your cushion. You know, we'd have have to be dragging you out of here tonight. Notice that we often pay attention to the painful and the unpleasant and the difficult Only when there's no alternative. Often only when all our strategies of avoidance have been exhausted. And we see that in our life and our practice when something is more neutral, and that's actually quite a lot in life, mostly our attention just slides away. And we say, oh, this is boring. You know, and we just dismiss, actually, very large parts of our life. So here is the first kind of like insight in this practice. And it, it, it's, it's the first tension that we meet and the first also the invitation to actually discern what is wise attention. To know the difference between this kind of attention that I was speaking about a moment ago, you know, that's entranced by the pleasant, you know, enduring the unpleasant, spacing out in the neutral to know the difference between that kind of attention, which in this tradition is called childlike concentration, and what is a a mature attentiveness, what is a wise attentiveness. And I would almost define wise attentiveness as, as really simple, the willingness to attend to all things with equal respect. The pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral. And to find that willingness to attend to all things with equal respect, I'm sure you know in your own experience that this takes really quite a shift in attitude. It involves a considerable amount of insight, but it really determines whether some of the tension we experience in this path, whether it's going to be negative and exhausting or whether it's going to be creative and vital. Now, one thing I am sure you've already figured out today, that forcing does not create wise attention. All that it creates is more tension 
and more contractedness. Wise attention is born of a lot of different things. Sense of ease, interest, investigation, and happiness. So today we've, we've encouraged you to, to, to use the mindfulness of breathing to, to begin to cultivate this sense of wise attentiveness, to learn how to begin to, you know, I love this, this word of, of gathering and collecting ourselves as a kind of definition of attentiveness. You, you can almost feel that process today. It's, it's almost like you're gathering and you're collecting yourselves, you know, from the way that your attention has been the past and the future, preoccupied, obsessed, distracted. You almost feel the sense of what we're really doing here is we're gathering, we're collecting ourselves, cultivating a sense of collectedness. And in doing that, I, I'd just like to explore this evening what, what we actually mean by gladdening our hearts and, and to look at some of the building blocks of a gladdened heart. Now, some of these we have already touched upon, and one of them we've touched upon several times because for sure one of the building blocks of gladness is generosity. It's a cornerstone of this path, it's at the heart of a meditative life. And generosity is, is spoken about in this tradition in different ways. Certainly there is a kind of material generosity, but there's this gift of fearlessness and the gift of understanding, the gift of the Dhamma. Now, it's really hard to, to, to listen to this teaching and not hear over and over again this emphasis that we are learning to be generous. And to be generous, it means often for most of us, learning about letting go and about not holding, not withholding. Because you know, we experience that, you know, this, this is kind of like, I don't know, earth wisdom, you know, like we experience it every time in our life, whenever we're holding on to anything, the, the almost visceral, the immediate effect of that is this kind of sense of contractedness and tightness. It's really important to know that on the experiential level, you know, to really have a felt sense of that. Because then, if we have a felt sense of the painfulness of holding and, and, and contracting around things, then we understand that we learn how to release things we learn how to let go, not because it's the right thing to do or it's what good yogis do or it's what we're supposed to do, but we learn to let go out of kindness, that it is a gesture of kindness. It's a gesture of compassion. Letting go in truth is a very direct way of gladdening our lives and our hearts. So how are we generous to ourselves here? And I think this is also important because often we think of being generous to ourselves as a kind of uh, a, a sort of deluded loving kindness, you know, a sort of foolish loving kindness. You know, we could think, well, you know, I'm having a hard day today, you know. I wonder, you know, like maybe I'll kind of order a pizza, you know, or I'll take a trip into Barry to catch the highlights or you know, I'll go to sleep, you know. I think, I mean, just being generous to myself. But it's actually not. <laughs> I mean, the true generosity to ourselves is actually learning to let go of discontent. That's actually the biggest generosity to ourselves. And learning to let go of that discontent, particularly that is rooted in these heroic struggles to be what we are not in this moment and to have what we are not, just... Think of the painfulness that is born of that so often in our lives. So we learn to be content with agitation. We learn to be content with a grumpy mind. We learn to be content with resistance. You know, Tibetan, in the Tibetan traditions, they tell this story. It's, it's a very implausible story, but many of these stories are. They, they tell this story about this, this wealthy king who could, who could never be content, never appreciate anything else. Life was joyless because 
He never felt like he had enough, and he was always coveting what his neighboring kings had. You know, they had more land, they had better cows, etc., etc. So the name of this king, when it's translated from Tibetan, and this is the implausible part, the name of this king was King Hard to Please. Which is something that kind of always makes me smile because I'm just aware of how many times in my own practice, my own life, I meet Madam Hard to Please. It's a kind of... It's a kind of resistance to what is. It's a kind of... It's often a kind of mind of refusal to be with discomfort. And the mind that refuses to be with discomfort, quite frankly, finds it very difficult to find contentment. It's always leaning into the next moment. It's always leaning to, into a better moment. I mean, you come here, you know, perhaps as, as John says, you know, you've done MBSR retreats in five-star hotels on Caribbean beaches, you know. You come here in the middle of a New England winter, you know. Maybe we expected the Hilton. You know, you get a foam slab with a snoring roommate, you know. You know, maybe we expected bliss and we get a wayward mind. But honestly, can you imagine in this world a person who only ever has lovely thoughts and a body that is always delightful, who is always surrounded only by people that they love and who only experiences uplifting emotions? My sense is that no one in the history of humankind has ever managed this. And I personally feel very, very confident that I am not going to be the first. <laughs> so there's a tremendous relief, actually, in, in, in ending up not struggling with the way things are. You know, There's a tremendous kind of liberation in just not trying to kind of force this world to try to be the source of my contentment. A tremendous relief in, stop, in, in, in stopping doing that. You know, we can relax into the way things are. What we're really letting go of is our demand that life must be other than it is. That doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean resignation. It doesn't mean endurance. But what it does mean is we stopped arguing with the moment. We stopped arguing with the way things are. It's in the midst of this imperfect world that we are really invited to nurture, to cultivate, and to discover the sense of inner ease and joy and contentment. We're learning to let go of our wants and demands. Kabir, I think, says this really wonderfully. He says, I said to this wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? Do you believe there is some place that will make the heart less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Enter into your own body. There you have a place to rest. Throw away the thought of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Generosity is sometimes learning to let go of some of our preoccupations, the the ways that we can obsess so endlessly about how things should be. Again, in the Tibetan traditions, it's often said that preoccupations will not end until the moment we die, but we, they do end when we put them down, that this is their nature. I mean, there is in truth so much, actually almost anything, that we can think and worry about, plan for and regret. Obsession, you know, is one of our favorite pastimes, actually. <laughs> but, you know, it's actually an awful pastime. It's terribly, terribly painful. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but I've never really found that obsessing about anything makes any difference to anything. I mean, it doesn't make, it doesn't fix anything, doesn't make anything go away. 
All it does is add pain to pain. It's kind of like a habit, I think, of obsession. You know, it, it's like chewing gum. You know, like you could imagine if you got up this morning and you put a piece of gum in your mouth, and, you know, the first few chomps are kind of tasty, you know, and you know, get the saliva glands flowing and all, you know, and it's kind of interesting. Imagine if you had to sit here all week chewing the same piece of gum. You know, your jaws aching, completely flavorless. You're absolutely worn out with the chewing. You could take it out. I know I'm making that sound simple, and it's not. But at least we need to acknowledge it as an option. Just to acknowledge it as an option. Because what we really see in like the mind that does its looping, its endless looping, suffocates gladness. Hmm? Because often that looping has a kind of undercurrent of anxiety and busyness. And so, you know, learning to let go of obsession, this is a practice. You know, it's not a magical moment. It's a practice. It's a training. Moment to moment, out of kindness, out of compassion, we learn to put down our looping habits again and again and again. It's actually why we, we practice mindfulness of breathing because when we're coming back to our breath, you know, from uh, an obsession or a fantasy or a repetitive thought pattern, that's how you're training and letting go. You know, because we're coming back from somewhere. So we're actually learning to walk that pathway of learning to let things be, learning to let them go, learning to release them, moment to moment to moment. You know, as I, as I mentioned before, we're not practicing mindfulness of breathing to be perfect breathers. We're actually learning the art of freedom. The art of, of inner psychological, emotional, heart freedom. It's, it's what we are training ourselves in moment to moment. And, it, you know, every time we do that, we're kind of lightening the load, we're lightening the burden just a little bit that we can all come, all carry. And every time we do that, you know, you can begin to get a taste of the gladdened heart. It's a taste of spaciousness. It's a taste of not being contracted. It's a taste of not being entangled. And we learn to kind of savor that taste, to really have confidence in it, to, to really know it as a sense of possibility. And the gift of fearlessness is really another aspect of generosity, to be, to be a refuge to those who have no place of safety, to protect those who have no protection, to, to be a friend to, to those who have no friends. <clears throat> but the gift of fearlessness is also something that we offer to ourselves. Mostly what we will see in our practice, and I'm sure you see this many of you in your work, that aversion and fear are the proximate causes of disconnection. What we are averse to or fearful of, we will tend to try to distance ourselves from. And in truth, there is so much that we find that we can turn away from in ourselves. All the thoughts, the emotions, the experiences that we condemn or judge or dismiss in ourselves. And actually, we can do this so often that we quite forget what it means to be a friend to ourselves to offer protection to ourselves, to be a refuge to ourselves. So we actually see in this practice, a lot of what we're doing is we are cultivating the generosity of non-abandonment. You know, and that's often how I really see mindfulness. It is non-abandonment. And our practice is and can be an expression of that, that kind of generosity in every moment where we don't abandon anything, not the wandering mind, not the shuffling neighbor, you know, not the thought or the feeling that we don't like. We say this too is worthy of our attention. 
And sometimes it is said that the world is full of choices, but at times the only choice that we have is what attitude we are going to bring to this moment. Another of the threads, so that we might say the building blocks of the gladdened heart, is this quality of appreciative joy, appreciative happiness. The word in Pali is mudita. Actually translated from Pali, mudita means a heart of gladness. And in Zen, there's a wonderful haiku that says, Although I am in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long to be in Kyoto. And I think it is a haiku that is really speaking to this kind of sometimes relentless but very strong ache we can carry in our hearts of just being not enough. Like the moment's not enough, we're not enough, something missing, something absent, something we have to strive for. And appreciative joy and mudita is, is, is in a way of turning that tide because it's learning to delight in actually all that is well. It's learning to delight in and to appreciate all that is lovely, all that makes our hearts sing. I mean, I know that, that when you sit with an aching back or an ache, a wayward mind or frustration or doubt or endless busyness, we're so sure that we're far from Kyoto. But the more indignant we become, the more insulted we feel, is the more tight and contracted that we find ourselves. You know, and, and this is not so uncommon in Western culture and Western practice to, to just focus on only that which is broken, to focus only on that which is flawed or imperfect, inwardly and outwardly. And when we do that, gladness actually feels very far away and it gets replaced by contractedness. You know, and the Buddha once said that it's unskillful practice to only use the unpleasant as an object of attention. Because inevitably for most people to do that will be so kind of one-sided that it will start to begin to embed the habit of aversion. An aversion that gets associated with practice, an aversion that can get associated with our body, an aversion that can get associated with our mind, actually can get associated with all of life. Now, it is true, of course, that that which is broken needs attention. But it needs the attention of care and compassion, needs the attention of goodwill and a a sense of sincerity, But allowing ourselves to also know that which is well is part of mudita, part of this appreciative joy. I've always found in my own practice, in my own life, that nature is a tremendous ally in cultivating this this gladdened heart, to allow ourselves to delight in the small miracles and moments of life that are beautiful, allowing them to touch our hearts, the stillness of the trees, you know, the views of the hills, the sound of the wind. And, you know, I would really encourage you to take some time in your days here to connect also with that which is lovely. Truth is, you know, there is enough that is hard. You don't have to go looking for it. We need to know also not to forget about that which is lovely, inwardly and outwardly. It's like see, really noticing how the, this capacity to be wholeheartedly present kind of illuminates our world. That's the purpose of mindfulness. It's to illuminate our world inwardly and outwardly. It's to open some of the closed doors of our heart and to be touched. And it's not a sacrifice of mindfulness. You know, I, I sometimes find people get so tight in retreat, you know, did I mess, miss that one step, you know, or did I miss that one breath, you know, they get so tight about being 
present that actually they, they really lose connection with that sense of, of spaciousness and they're, they're afraid that actually to look at a tree is somehow a sacrifice of mindfulness. It's actually not. And the mindfulness practice, one of the things that it does in terms of insight, it's really questioning this kind of conventional belief system that our happiness and our joy and our ease of being depends upon someone or something making us happy. And we all know there's a lot of suffering in that externalization of the sources of happiness and the sources of, of sorrow because it only leads to a life of avoidance and pursuit. So there's actually a real questioning of that and actually really looking inwardly to our own hearts and minds this source of happiness as well as the source of sorrow. You know what we do in this practice? We don't look for things to delight us. We awaken our capacity to be delighted. It's a vast difference between those two. Learning to awaken our capacity to be delighted, our capacity to be touched, our capacity to, to feel the aliveness of the moment. And that's born of our willingness to attend to and to celebrate blessings. You know, appreciative joy, this was actually never a big, a big part of my internal repertoire. I actually had to learn about it. Then one of one of my colleagues, <laughs> you know, he, he used to he was very aware of this. You know, when I used to teach with him, I'd I would kind of show up in the morning. He'd say, "Christina, did you sleep well?" I said, "Not bad." He'd say, "You know, did, did you wake up healthy?" "Yeah, pretty good." You know, you know, you have enough to eat? Hey, yeah, absolutely fine. You know, you're warm enough. Is your family well? You know, and moment by moment, I could sort of feel myself getting happier and happier. You know, and it, it was like just—it wasn't contrived, but it, it was just really sensing how that that capacity for appreciation—it needs as much attention as the capacity to attend to the difficult. They both need something. It is not a way of, uh, you know, we don't live in a perfect world, but our capacity to meet with, sometimes to bear, and sometimes to understand the imperfect and the difficult is made so much easier by our willingness to soften and relax and release this demand that life must be other than it is. And, And to bring to the moment this, this kind of open-heartedness and that capacity to be touched. I mean, we can see so clearly that when our heart is closed, that the world feels close to us too. When we don't see fully or deeply, nothing can touch us. And when our mind is weary, everything looks dark and tired. And the aliveness and the loveliness we all long for really begins with enlivening our own hearts. As Rumi once said, today, like every other day, we wake up empty and frightened. Don't open the door to the study and begin reading. Take down a musical instrument. Let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Another great ally, one of the great cornerstones of a gladdened heart is the cultivation of spaciousness. And I know sometimes when we use that word, people feel puzzled by what is spaciousness. I mean, we surely know what it feels like to be spacey, you know, or to be spaced out. But that's not actually what is meant by spaciousness. I spoke to a monk when, once who, who heard that his teacher was dying in Thailand, so he, he, he went to make a last visit in the anticipation of reaching, you know, receiving some special last words of wisdom from his teacher. And his teacher said to him, Notice the difference between the mind and the activities of the mind. And at first he said he felt really disappointed. <laughs> 
like he thought maybe his teacher was delirious or something, and I, I what on earth did he meant? But then he realized this was a teaching about spaciousness. And I'll give you a few examples of this. You know, when you walk into this room or walk into any room in your life, Usually our attention is drawn to all the things in the room, isn't it? The chairs, the cushions, the lights, you know, the plants. Now, suppose you just make a little step sideways, and when you walk into the room, let's see, bring your attention to notice the space in the room. Now, the space in the room, of course, is what allows all the things in the room to be here. And the space in the room, in truth, really doesn't have any preferences. There's a mind, you know, burgundy zabatans or pink zabatans. You know, doesn't mind lots of people, no people. The space in the room is, is free from those preferences. The space in the room is accommodating. It is what makes it possible for everything to be here. Now, you notice when we notice just the things in the room, Our mind can get very excited, can't it? Oh, I like that, I don't like that, you know, I would arrange it this way, you know, maybe we should turn things around, you know, we should get rid of that. You notice how the mind gets excited, can get agitated about the things in the room. Space is actually very still. It is not preoccupied with what appears. You take another exercise, listening or hearing, just just resting in that quality of hearing. And the sounds that arise. You know, we hear the silence. And the sounds arise out of that silence, and they fall back into that silence. Sometimes there's many sounds. Sometimes there's few. Sometimes they're lovely. Sometimes they're not so lovely. The silence really doesn't have preferences. And again, when we listen, we're often really drawn to what we hear. But what about just listening? Noticing the space between the sounds and within the sounds. The silence between the sounds. The silence within the sounds. You know, musicians will tell you that it is silence that makes music possible. Suppose you shifted that into your practice and into how you contemplate your own mind. Now, in truth, the space within your heart, the space within your mind, has room for everything. But this kind of step sideways can offer us a different way of being with a mind or heart that can often feel too overfull, too too packed, too gridlocked. To notice that the thoughts, the emotions, the feelings, they arise within the space of the mind and they fall away within the space of the mind. We're actually learning not to be so mesmerized by what appears, but learning to find that space that allows what appears to be accommodated, to be held. Now, we need to step back a little and and to calm down a little to really get a taste of this sense of spaciousness. But it is serene. It is serene. It is calm. It is still. It's waiting for us. I'm not saying it's magical again. It's a journey. But we keep need to... Keep stepping back and just getting that taste. What does spaciousness feel like? What does spaciousness look like in this moment in a mind that can feel, you know, very full, very, very crowded? You know, in Zen there's a saying that when your mind is not crowded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. And the unnecessary things, that's not the thoughts. Of course, as long as we have a mind, we have thoughts. Why not? You know, as long as we, we, we have a mind and a heart, we have emotions. Why not? This is not the unnecessary things. The unnecessary things is this whole extra layer 
that is placed upon those feelings and thoughts of wanting, not wanting, aversion, resistance, judgment, you know, narration about it, that's the unnecessary things. We learn to release the unnecessary things, and this truly is the best season of our life. Learning to gladden our hearts. Generosity, appreciative joy, the contemplation of spaciousness, we begin to taste that gladness. I'd like to end with something that Oliver Sacks wrote a time when he was convalescing from a leg injury. He said, after breakfast, I wandered out. It was a particularly glorious September morning. Settled myself on a stone seat with a large view in all directions and filled and lit my pipe. This was a new or at least almost forgotten experience. I'd never had the leisure to light a pipe before. Or so, or not, it seemed to me, for 14 years at least. Now suddenly I had an immense sense of leisure, an unhurriedness, a freedom I had almost forgotten, but which now it had returned seemed the most precious thing in life. There was an intense sense of stillness, peacefulness, joy, a pure delight in the now, freed from drive or desire. I was intensely conscious of each leaf, autumn-tinted on the ground, intensely conscious of the Eden around me. The world was motionless, everything concentrated in an intensity of sheer being. Now on this morning, as though on the first morning of creation, I felt like Adam beholding a new world with wonder. I had not known or had forgotten that there could be such beauty, such completeness in every moment. I had no sense at all of moments, of the serial, only and of the perfection and the beauty of the timeless now. We have just a moment quietly together. Have a walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.